Okay, we have been working through a red letter study. We're just getting started. This is only the third installment. And you know these things that we start at the effect last forever. So this will be another never-ending story. Actually, we're, just, we're probably just going to go up through the Sermon on the Mount. We did the Sermon on the Mount uh, not too long ago. But uh, what we're doing in case some of you are here for the first time, you don't know what red letters are. In some Bible editions, the words that are spoken verbatim by Jesus in the Gospels are printed in red ink to distinguish them from the black ink. And so we're going to go be going through primarily what did Jesus say? And what did he mean by what he said from an Aramaic point of view? Aramaic being the language that Jesus most reasonably spoke um, to his followers and uh, in, in everyday language on the street. Um, rather than Hebrew, Aramaic was the lingua franca of the, uh, the Levant. Isn't it? You know, love that word, Levant. Yeah, the eastern Mediterranean seaboard. And uh, so we are looking at it from that linguistic and historical context. We're trying to put everything back in there so we can really get underneath the, the skin and uh, find out what Jesus was trying to say and how his followers were reacting to that. Um, and that's such a huge part of the equation. You know, that new show, The Chosen, the interesting thing about that is that it's, it's sh- be showing it basically from the follower's point of view. And so, hence The Chosen, right? Um, but to understand Jesus from the viewpoint of his first followers is really where we're trying to end up. We can't impute Jesus' intention in what he meant to say. But what we can do is understand to the best of our ability from this historical linguistic context, from their worldview and their culture, what those words would have meant in the minds of his first followers. And that's probably the closest we're going to get. So that's what we were doing. Last week, um, we were talking about Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. And so we went through that. We went through the the 40-ness of it all, you know, 40 being a symbolic number that means a time of trial and testing into some sort of rebirth, uh, or realization, awakening, um, that it wasn't a literal number, but it was a number that was showing that Jesus spent a long time establishing his identity in his Father, which flies in the face a lot of the times in the way we have been taught to look at Jesus, uh, the way that we naturally have, is Jesus basically knowing who he was from birth. But Luke clearly states that he grew in wisdom and in stature. And so if he had to grow, then he had to learn. Elsewhere, the Bible is telling us he was fully human as we are human. And so he had to do the things that we have to do. Otherwise, what kind of model is he for us? If he flew above the fray and didn't have to really suffer the things that we suffer here and understand the human condition, then his line about us doing what he has done and greater things than these would ring pretty hollow if he really weren't doing those things himself. And so he spent this time, this long time, somewhere between, there's 18 unaccounted for years in in Jesus' life, if we're going to take the uh, chronology of the, the Gospels as verbatim. And if we do that, we still got 18 years from 12 to 30. What was he doing in that time? How long was he there? How long was he away from home? Probably Joseph had died by this time. Um, and so Jesus would have been become the head of the household and the head of the family business and, and sustaining the family. And so if he leaves to go on this trek, of course, he's leaving it to brothers to be able to take over for him. But still, there's a vacuum there. How long was he gone until he came back again? Establishing his identity, because when he comes back from the wilderness, he is able to say that I and the Father are one. And that oneness is everything. We need to know that. Because when we're looking at Jesus and the way he lives and the way he loves, we are understanding this is how the Father, this is how God lives and loves. He vanquished his ego in the process. Those three temptations, again, three, a perfect number, symbolizing all of the obsessive compulsive drives that we as humans are prey to, uh, he was able to vanquish those. Always coming back to scripture, always coming back to his traditional roots to get to a place of undivided presence. People always said that Jesus taught with authority, not like the other religious figures of his day. I imagine that's because when you looked at Jesus, he was looking back at you. 
It was inescapable when his eyes fixed on you. That presence must have been something that was palpable, you know, maybe even uncomfortable because he's just looking into your soul. That's the way I imagine the integrity of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. That's the kingdomness of Jesus, what he's trying to get across to us, that we can develop presence that is that connecting in everything that we do and everyone that we meet. That's kingdom. He's trying to tell us that. This is what it is. You don't have to wait for it. It's right here. It's right now. It's up to you to become this, to step into this attitude, this quality of life and quality of presence. And so out of the wilderness he comes after years of preparation, and he settles in Capernaum. And uh, this uh, is interesting. It's uh, a small fishing village on the north shore of the, of the Galilee. And uh, the original uh, Hebrew name was Kafar Nahum, which literally meant the village of Nahum, Nahum, we would probably say, but it also means village of comfort. It was uh, established in the second century during the Hasmonean dynasty. Um, some estimates of population were around 1,500. It was a major center of trade routes. It was at the crossroads of several of the caravan routes. And um, the Byzantine church, um, or during the, the Byzantine Empire, a church was built over a house that is traditionally Peter's house, where he lived with his mother that is referenced in the Gospels. But what is happening here, a lot of, another thing that we sometimes um, are thinking about Jesus when he says that you know, the, the birds have their nest and the fox have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, we take that to mean that Jesus was completely itinerant, that he had no home whatsoever. But what the scriptures are actually telling us is that he settled in Capernaum. And so it's most likely if he left Nazareth to settle to, to Capernaum, which is exactly what the scriptures tell us, that he brought his family with us. He established a home there. His mother lived there. His brothers and sisters lived there. The family business was moved there from Nazareth to Capernaum, right on the north shore of Galilee, this fishing village. It was essentially his base of operations. We always see him coming back to Capernaum after he does the various tours that he does, whether it's to Judea or through Galilee or even to Syrophoenicia on the coast. Wherever he goes, he comes back to Capernaum. And there are several references for him of, of him going to his home and people meeting him there. And so it gives us a different kind of, of uh, look at Jesus, that he didn't desert his family. He came back. He took care of his mother. We know he took care of his mother, right? Because on the cross, he gives responsibility for his mother to John. You know, you know, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother, as he is dying on the cross. And so he took care of her. He did what he was supposed to do as the head of the household. He did what he was supposed to do as bar mitzvah, as a son of the law. He never broke the written law. He never missed the pilgrimages. It was the oral law of the Pharisees that he was pushing against constantly and breaking on purpose to make a point, right? But Jesus fulfilled everything that he was supposed to do as son of his mother and son of the law. And it gives us a different kind of window in to, to Jesus. So immediately after Satan leaves, Hasatan leaves, uh, after the third temptation is foiled, right, in the wilderness, Immediately after that, he comes back. He comes back home to the Galilee from wherever he was. He, re he uh, hears that his um, cousin John, John the Baptist, has been imprisoned um, for speaking truth to power, and um, he withdraws to the Galilee. He knows it's pretty hot down in Judea right now. Things aren't too cool for these uh, followers of John or those who have been baptized by John. So he retreats to the Galilee, which is north of Judea. And he goes from Nazareth to Capernaum. And at this point, we pick up at Matthew 4, um, verse 17. Just one line I want to read you. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's a simplified version of uh, Mark 1.15 that we led with in the first of the, of the uh, Red Letter Studies, where he said, The time is at hand. The kingdom is near. But when we retranslate that back into Aramaic, the waiting is over. 
the kingdom is already here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here now. Repent and believe the gospel. And so this is a cut-down version of that, which often happens. Remember, we're doing this as a harmony of the four gospels. So we're going to be going back and forth the gospels to try to get a unified narrative here. But that often happens where sayings of Jesus are paraphrased differently in other gospels, or they are simplified, and so on and so forth. So this is a simplified version of that, to repent. Remember, when we hear the word repent, we normally think of contrition or remorse or guilt because that's what was pummeled into us, especially if you are of Catholic extraction, as I am. But it really has nothing to do with that ultimately. What it has to do with is a change of direction, a change of direction of thought, a change of direction of behavior, and everything toward kingdom. This is where Jesus is trying to get us to repent to, to change to, to redirect to, is to this kingdom, which again is not a place, it's a quality of life. It's internal, right? So this quality of presence, this quality of life within, here and now, is what we're supposed to be moving toward. So not contrition and not remorse, but the action that comes out of the remorse, out of the guilt that we may be feeling, out of the contrition that we're expressing, can come from that. But without the action, nothing takes place. We can feel all the guilt we want for as long as we want. And it won't change anything until we let that motivate us to make a change. And that's why guilt is also a gift from God, because it is that warning light on the dashboard that tells us something is wrong. It is the motivator that will take us into this new action to change direction, to change our thoughts, to change our behavior, or what? Or God's never going to let us into kingdom? No. It's already here. It's already realized. Nothing is ever withheld from God. But if we don't change and make this direction change in thought and behavior, we will never be able to see or be aware of the kingdom that is already here, the possibility of this quality of life being acted out in our own. So the kingdom is not given. It's not bestowed. It's not allowed it's simply received or not by us. As always, we are the actors. God has acted already. What is our response going to be? So putting this in more um, psychological terms, it's kind of like the difference between CBT and psychodynamic therapy. CBT being cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of you are, are aware of that term, right? Now, psychodynamic therapy, starting with Freud and the couch and all that kind of stuff, right? That has to do with revealing unconscious contents of our psyche. Those things down in the unconscious that we don't even know about that are the roots of our emotional suffering. So psychodynamic therapy is going to take the time. And if you're really doing analysis, it's going to take a lot of time. You know, psychodynamic therapy is a shorter form of, of uh, analysis. But it's designed to bring all that stuff up out of the unconscious, make it conscious, so we can understand what is driving a lot of these thoughts and behavior patterns, these compulsions and these addictions and whatever else that are creating all the dysfunction in our lives. Well, what CBT does, cognitive behavioral therapy, is say, well, we're going to not start from the past. We're going to start right here and now in the present, and we're going to work on modifying the way that we think and the way that we behave in real time. Now, truthfully, both often can work hand in glove. But what Jesus is really giving us is a form of CBT. To repent is to change the way that you think, the way that you behave right here and right now. There are exercises for doing that in CBT therapy. You know, ways to start to build your awareness so that you can see what's in, in operation as it's happening so that you can make a different decision. And so to act to repent into right thinking and right behaving is really what Jesus' prescription is. Now, when you do that, when you start acting and behaving in a kingdom manner, it's going to lock relationships together. It's going to bring connections together where you really will be healed of those emotional roots, those unconscious roots as well. It's kind of a twofer, right? But it'll take a little bit more time, perhaps. But we've already done the operational thing. You know, at first we're doing no harm in our relationships because we are modifying and moderating the way that we think and the way that we act. This is that repentance part. 
with the new thought, with thought patterns, with the new behavior patterns, we are moving into this undivided presence, which is the kingdom. So this is the behavior that we're trying to cultivate. Now, what behavior is that? Well, it's Jesus' behavior, you know, not to put it too bluntly. Following Jesus' way is the repentance that he's talking about. How do we change directions toward kingdom? Do what Jesus did. Follow his way. The first followers of Jesus called themselves Dalmidi Urha, followers of the way. Not followers of Jesus even, which kind of messes with our head. They were trying to follow the way of Jesus. That was the place that they put the emphasis because you couldn't follow Jesus without actually living and acting as he did. So following this way was a way of becoming what they called Talmidi, Talmidim, which is what we translate as disciples or followers. But it doesn't have real an analog in the English language because to become Talmidim was so full and complete, we don't have a way of capturing that. A true Talmid, a true Talmidim is plural, a true Talmid would be one who would let go of their whole identity and re-imprint themselves with the identity of the master to completely change themselves over to become what the master was. We don't really have anything like that. You know, I always think of an apprentice who, who uh, serves under a master tradesman of some sort for years to become as good as the, the master. Um, there's that. But that's not a complete makeover of their entire person. There is the uh, boot camp recruit to one of the armed services who has to give up hair and civilian clothes and everything about themselves and take on this new identity uh, as a member of a troop. Okay, that may work. But there's really nothing just in regular life that corresponds to a follower the way this does. So when we read the word disciple or follower, we're not getting the full boat. We're not getting the full impact of what it meant for them to actually follow Jesus' way, to re-imprint themselves, to be willing to give up everything that was them as they saw it, as they understood it, to truly vanquish that ego, to truly vanquish those drives that we talked about, those obsessive compulsive drives, and become a new person. When Paul talks about becoming a new person in Christ, this is what he's talking about. The old man is dead. This new man comes in. All right? So how does this play out in real life? Well, here's Jesus now calling his Talmidim. He's calling his first followers. And so at John 1, verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. So the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. That word there, disciples, that's Talmid. Okay, Talmidim. And he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Wouldn't you? Yeah. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, This is great. What do you seek? And you're just walking along, and you see these two guys. What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Now, is that really what they sought? <laughs> but that's the beauty of this dialogue. It's so real, isn't it? They, they, they turn and follow Jesus because of the reference that John makes to him as being the Lamb of God. What do you seek? Oh, Rabbi, where are you staying? And this is classic Jesus. He says to them, come and you will see. Ah, that is beautiful. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about the 10th hour. This is so perfect. What do you seek? What a loaded question that is, huh? What do you seek? And then the answer, the non-answer, come and see. This is classic Jesus. Never gives a straight answer to a question, always asks another question, or tells a story, or in this case makes an invitation. You really want to know where I'm staying? And think of that in the full metaphorical sense. Where is Jesus staying? He's staying in kingdom. That's where he stays. I don't care where he opens the door to. It's kingdom wherever he goes because he is kingdom. That's where he's staying. Come and see. Come and see where this is. Here's this invitation to a deeper connection, invitation to something deeper. And then it says they stayed the day. Now, how long was that? Well, it was about the 10th hour. Now, if you hear about the 10th hour, are you thinking that that's like 10 in the morning? I mean, that would make sense. I mean, that's the way we work. It probably wasn't 10 at night. But they 
looked at time differently. And this is something that, just really quickly, just to, again, to get a sense of the alien nature of the way the ancients looked at time compared to the way that we do. We are now making um, appointments down to less than five minutes. I mean, I've seen um, classes that are like, they start at 10.03. And what's the point of that? I mean, 10.03, really? Do we really need that? Is that three minutes important? But we're, you know, the, the granular nature of our resolution of time has gone right down to this, this narrow, narrow bit. The ancients were anything but, but that. The ancients had, uh, and the Hebrews had what was called a proportional hour. So they would divide the daytime into 12 equal hours from sunrise to sunset. Now, sunset began the day for the Jews. That was the beginning of their day, and then it went from sunset to sunset. And during the daytime, he had 12 equal hours. But the thing is, we know our days are not the same length from season to season, right? The days get longer, the days get shorter, but you always have 12 hours, and those hours would just expand or contract to be equal hours throughout the day. Now, would that mess with your train schedule or what? Now, with the night, once the Romans took over Judea in 63 BCE, they went from, instead of having 12 proportional hours during the night, they went to the Roman system of having four watches during the night. And remember, the Romans start their time at midnight, and we are the children of Rome, so we start our day at midnight as well, right? Not at sunset, which really makes more sense when you think about it. But the Romans started at midnight, and so the first watch was midnight to 3 a.m., second watch was 3 a.m. to 9, and then so on and so forth, all the way to 6 in the morning when usually it was about sunset. So those four watches, and a trumpet was blown at the end of every watch. And this is what's also interesting, is that the, the watch, the, the first watch, that uh, happened in, in right at 3 a.m. was called cockcrow. And so when that trumpet blew, you knew that it was three hours until dawn or so, something like that. When Jesus tells Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times, this is what he's referring to, is the cockcrow, the trumpet blast from the Roman garrison, um, and rather than an actual rooster making a sound. But these little details kind of lock this into a better historical proportion. And so those 12 proportional hours during the day were counted from 1 to 12. So the 10th hour was actually 4 p.m. our time. So they're meeting Jesus late in the afternoon. And we don't know really what this means, that they stayed the day with him, because the day would have ended at uh, sunset. So were they only with Jesus an hour or two? We don't know. Because again, the 10th hour is an hour. So it's between 4 and 5. It's not specific to any start time. You know, they didn't have to worry about being that granular about it. It's like when you want, oh, let's meet at the, the ninth hour. Okay, plus or minus an hour. You know, and plus or minus more than an hour because sometimes an hour was an hour and a half during the summer. So it's just a whole different way of looking at time. But this was late in the afternoon. It was about 4 or 5 p.m. when they meet Jesus. And, uh, and then... They stay with him the rest of the day. Um, these small details, I think, bring the story to life. I love the way that they do that. They, um, they continue. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. And uh, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. Now, in Hebrew, that would have been Mashiach, which translates means Christ. That stands for Christos, which is the, um, the Greek. So Christos and Mashiach both mean the anointed one. And this is the way that kings were um, put into power. They were anointed with oil and so on and so forth. So if you were anointed for a specific purpose, you were the Christos in Greek. You were the Mashiach in, in um, Hebrew. And so this is the way that the Jews understood their Messiah, their Mashiach, that he would be anointed as a king, as a political warrior, to be able to then push the Romans out, reestablish the sovereignty of Israel. That's who they were looking for in their Mashiach. So we have found the Mashiach, which translates means Christos. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Okay, this is Andrew bringing Simon, right, to Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon and says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called what looks like Cephas to our, but in Aramaic would be Kepha, 
you shall be called Kepha, which is translated Peter, which is Petras in Greek, which means rock. The next day, he purposed to go into the Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. There's so much cool stuff going on in here. I mean, I love that Nathaniel, you know, anything good come out of Nazareth. Now that tells you a whole load about the way that Judeans looked at the Galilee, first of all. The Galilee would be like uh, rural Alabama to people in New York. That's the way they looked at the Galilee. They had a different dialect. They had different customs. They were backwater. They were other side of the tracks. They were the rubes. They didn't really want to deal with them at all, right? And then Nazareth was like one of the crummiest towns in the Galilee. So you had all this going for you. So it's, it's just beautiful the way Nathaniel puts this. Now, the part that I didn't get into is that when um, Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus, as soon as he sees him walking, he says, oh, here's a great son of Israel. And he says, well, you don't even know me. And he says, before you came, I saw you under the fig tree <laughs> when Philip told you about me. And he says, oh, you are the son of God. He says, you're just saying that because I told you about the fig tree. He says, you're going to sing a lot more great stuff than that. You know? But it's just that these, these stories are so alive. You know? And they tell us so much about character that's going on here. And this is why if we dig into them just a little bit, it, it, it changes the way that we look at this. When we look at um, Simon, son of John, in, in Hebrew that would be Shimon bar Yohanan. And then he changes that to Kepha, which means rock. And so Shimon, though, what we would call Simon, means he has heard. So even the names mean something, and they further the story. Shimon, he has heard, and he becomes the rock. He becomes the one who everything is, you know, the, revolves around in terms of the group of Jesus' followers as they, as they kind of fall out. You know. So here we are with, uh, with uh, Shimon, and then Nathaniel, Nazareth, all these different things. And so now, let's take a look at the same story from Matthew's point of view and see what happens here. Matthew 4, starting at verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right. Is this a contradiction? What's going on here? Where did Jesus call Andrew and Peter? Did he find them both fishing at the shore of Galilee? Or did he meet Andrew first in some unspecified place? And then Andrew calls, goes and tells his brother and brings his... And we got a contradiction here. Not only that, uh, Matthew tells us that Peter was already called Peter. That Shimon was already called Kepha. Um, and then in John, Jesus renames him. So we've got these contradictions here. What are we supposed to do with that? Truthfully, it's absolutely impossible to harmonize all four Gospels. Just try to figure out the time that Jesus actually died on the cross, and you'll figure out how difficult it is. Nobody can parse that, because each Gospel has a little bit different take on it. And ultimately, it's not really important that we do so. That the, these details were different in different oral traditions. Remember, the first Gospel was probably not written until some 30 or 40 years after the crucifixion. It was all oral tradition before then. And so, yeah, you knew that, that telephone game where you tell one person and they tell me. But, you know, details are kind of naturally differ. And then those oral traditions, some of which were written down, then became the source material for the evangelists to write the Gospels that they wrote. They compiled their Gospels. But there is a logical possible harmony here that perhaps we're talking about two separate meetings where Jesus met Andrew and Andrew brought... Simon to him, and then later on, 
he sees them again fishing at the at the lakeshore and then calls them and immediately they leave their nets and and come and follow him we don't know for sure it's not a matter of faith to me hopefully it's not to you either but i know in many christian circles so much energy is spent to make sure that every detail is harmonized and absolutely accurate and justified in some way because they feel that's essential to the integrity of the of the bible Um, you can make your own determination on that for yourself but at any rate andrew peter james and john when they are called immediately leave their nets Leave their father. I wonder what his father, their father thought about that. What the heck are you doing? You know? And they follow Jesus. Then Jesus goes, and he's walking again by the seashore, and he walks past the toll booth. There were toll booths back then. Isn't that cool? They had them too. You know, there were several types of taxes that, you know, sometimes we look at the ancients as being so different than us. Really not so. In, in the Roman world, there were personal taxes that we would consider income taxes, and then there were property taxes. There were taxes on the land that you owned, just like we have property taxes. And then there were indirect taxes, one of which was transportation taxes. There were toll booths. And remember, Capernaum was one of those major transportation centers, so it was at the, a, a, a crossing or a nexus of these caravan roads. So the tax booth would have been set right there. So as you're po- moving through, you had to stop and pay the toll and then continue on. Now, Matthew was a Jew. Tax gatherers that were Jewish were absolutely hated by the people because they were Roman collaborators and they were growing rich off of the backs of the people. They hated the Romans for doing it to them and they hated their own people for doing it for them. And so tax gatherers and prostitutes and those who stood outside the law were all at the lowest social rung that you could imagine. They were like untouchables are in the Indian caste system. And you could not take anything from their hands. You couldn't touch them. You certainly couldn't eat with them or you would be considered unclean. So here's Matthew in this position. Now he's a rich man, got a great house and got all this stuff, but he is completely um, you know, excoriated by his own people. And Jesus just walks by the tax booth, turns and says, follow me. Now, the, the scripture is painted as if he were on springs. <laughs> he pops out of that tax booth, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. And then he throws a big dinner for Jesus at his house afterwards. And Jesus goes. And, of course, the Pharisees just jump all over Jesus for eating this unclean food and becoming unclean himself. And this is where Jesus says, hey, you know, where am I supposed to be? It's the sick that need the doctor, Right. So you see how all of these details of their daily life drives the story, drives the sayings of Jesus. And so imagine that scene at the tax booth. Levi pops up and leaves everything the scriptures tell us. He left all his money sitting there with like a mad scramble to grab that stuff by the people who were standing around. Who knows? He didn't care. He just left. He throws his party for Jesus. You know? Now, why did these five men that we're looking at so far, why did they follow? What was that all about? Imagine yourself, present day, you're at work, and some guy comes by and says, hey, follow me. Are you, are you really going to do that? You know, especially if he looks like he slept under a bush last night? Because Jesus spent a lot of open-air nights, right, as he was traveling around. Are you really going to follow that guy? It's, it's so interesting if we try to put it into our own terms. Now, we tend to look down on the, 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 the disciples in the sense that they were poor peasants. Okay? And we'll do that from our, well, you know, this is ancient times. It was different back then. You know, they were poor. What did they have to lose? I mean, they were just, you know, they're just poor anyway. So why not follow Jesus? But these men had families, they had wives, they had bills, they had taxes to pay. They had everything that we have, and their fishing or whatever their, their um, trade was, was to do exactly what your job does for you. If they left that, what do you think their wife had to say about that? How do you think that affected the livelihood? That's why I'm saying Jesus didn't abandon his family. At least he came back. Now, obviously, if they had other children who could fill in, but this is a big deal. This is a huge decision that had huge consequences. And so... This full, uh, uh, 
this idea that we are so different from them is one that we need to try to understand and say, no, they were faced with the same kind of decision points that we were, and yet they chose to immediately follow. Now, one thing that is different, well, maybe not so much, Israel was full of itinerant itinerant preachers and healers. The, the hills were full of them, and they were all, a lot of them self-proclaimed uh, messiahs, and, and so they were saying that they were the messiah, and so there's all these ones. And we got a lot of people maybe saying the same thing. We usually look at them as kind of nuts. In that culture, they had a certain standing, especially if they were healers, right? But why follow this one? What was it about Jesus that caused these men to be able to just pick up and go? You know, obviously the referral from John the Baptist, he carried a lot of weight with a lot of his followers. Um, or the, the, if your brother came and said, hey, this is a guy we need to check out. So that referral carried some weight. Also, Jesus was building a reputation for himself a reputation for integrity, of teaching with authority, as we've said before. But the scriptures indicate that these guys were meeting them for the first time, meeting him for the first time. And so does that reputation really count for a whole lot yet? Maybe they had heard of him. Maybe not. But also think about this. These were the outcasts. These poor people in the Galilee were outcasts. They were the invisible ones. They were the untouchables. What did it feel like to be included by someone like Jesus? who had this reputation, who when you looked at him, looked back at you in such a way that you felt something different about him. How would it feel if you got a call from a major religious figure right now? I mean, you pick the one that you think is up on the high pedestal. Would that be Joel Olstein? Would that be um, Paula White? Would that be, I mean, who is it that, and they called you out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, come join me. Come join my ministry. I want to work with you. I mean, that would be pretty cool, right? I mean, it would certainly spin your head around a little bit at least. Would you follow? Who knows? But would you follow for the wrong reasons would be another question. Are you looking for some sort of temporal gain? Are you looking for a feather in your cap? Are you looking as they were, these first followers of Jesus, for seats at the kingdom? Because remember, they still understood the kingdom as a physical kingdom. It was going to be Israel restored and they were going to get seats at the right hand of power. Right up to the crucifixion, they still were looking and jockeying for those positions. But these people were never asked to join anything. And here they were being asked. These people were never picked first for the team. Remember when you used to pick the team members? And these guys were always the last one picked. And here he is choosing them first. Why did they follow? Why did they follow? Well, that's exactly what Jesus wants to know, right? Let's go back to John 1. What do you seek? You're following me? What is it you want? What is it that you expect? He needs to start to qualify this. He needs to start to direct them toward who he really is and not just who they are seeing or expecting or desiring from him. And they simply ask, where are you staying? Come and see. That dialogue so loaded with meaning and yet so simple. We could probably translate it, paraphrase it this way. Jesus is asking them as he sees them following him, what is your deepest desire? What is your purpose? What is your will? And then the word for will in Aramaic, it's Shebiana. We've talked about this over and over. It doesn't mean will in the sense of a legal instrument. It doesn't mean will in the sense of an iron bulldozer that, that makes things happen to advantage. It's desire, deepest desire. It's pleasure, it's purpose, deepest purpose. That's what God's will really is. It's his desire, his pleasure, and his deepest purpose. What is that in you? Jesus is asking. What is your pleasure? What is your deepest wish and desire? Well, where are you staying? All right. Well, will you come sit with me and we'll find out? That's basically what Jesus is saying. I will always have time for you. Let's sit together and let's find out what your deepest desire is if you don't know. Jesus always cuts to the heart of things. Do you know what you want? Because if you don't, what are we doing here? You know, just digging holes? we got to figure out where the treasure is, and we want to dig there. 
Do you know what you want? Do you know what you're about? Do you know what your purpose is? What is this for? I've told some of you that uh, out of high school I joined a religious order. Good Catholic, you know. And uh, I went there and... uh, (laughs) I went for all the wrong reasons. I didn't realize that at the time. Um, and uh, I was always acting up. I was always bucking authority. That was kind of me back in those days and, and uh, just creating a uh, living hell for the novice master. Um, I remember at one point after so many months had gone by, one of my best friends, one of the fellow postulants there, we were having a quiet moment just talking in his room. And he finally looked at me and said, why are you even here? You know, I couldn't answer that question. And that was the beginning of the end of my vocation, by the way, because someone finally challenged me. Why are you even here? It's like, Jesus, what do you seek? What do you want? Why are you following me? What's this all about? Until you start to dig into those central questions, you really can't go anywhere. Why are you even here? What do you seek? Why are you here? Why are you here at the effect? What do you seek? What do you want? What's your desire? What do you expect to get out of this? Is it fellowship? Community? Is it great music? Yeah, 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 see? Brian still has his guitar. He can play for you. Is it information? Are you wanting to study? You want to learn? Is it the coffee and the donuts? You know? I guarantee you it's not the plush surroundings because we don't, we don't have those. What is it that you're seeking here? What is it? You need to know that. You keep showing up here and we love you and we love the community, but what is it that you seek? Jesus wants to bring it right to the point. And let's go to John 5 and see if we can put this final, finer point on this whole thing. Starting right at verse 1, John 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, classic, do you wish to get well? Now, wouldn't that just seem like a really condescending question to ask a guy who's been lying there for 38 years? Do you wish to get well? But this is Jesus at his finest, asking the absolutely incisive question. Do you wish to get well? And what does a sick man answer him? Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps in. These things kind of got cut off here, but you get the idea. So the the tradition was that from time to time, this pool of Bethesda, the waters would get all stirred up, and they believed that it was angels in the water who were stirring up the waters, and the first one in the pool got healed. And so the man is saying and making this excuse of Jesus, but, you know, I'm lame. I'm withered. I can't get into the pool fast enough. Someone always gets in before I do when the waters are stirred up. All right. Now, this should have been the biggest no-brainer of all time. Do you wish to get well? You've been lying at the edge of this pool for 38 years. Do you wish to get well? And he can't say yes. He gives excuses. He still has this victim mentality, doesn't he? And not only that, he's completely isolated. He has no community. He has no friends. You can see him, as you've probably seen, A lot of addicts and alcoholics, they end up burning every bridge, every relationship they know until finally there's nothing left. You can imagine this man going through the same sort of process in his life. There was nobody left. He had burned every bridge. People were tired of the constant victimization. And so he is alone there. And he has gotten to the point where he is defined by his victimhood. And he can't even say yes when Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? Now, what's the definition of a victim? It's someone who has no choice. A victim has no choice. Now, we're all momentary victims. Things victimize us. We don't have any choice, you know? The rainstorms come, the tree falls down in your car. You're a victim. But it's momentary. You didn't have any choice that the tree hit your car. You didn't have any choice of what happened to you. But in the next breath, you have a choice again. How do you react 
to that which has just happened. But some people end up identifying with not having a choice permanently in their lives over decades on end. Because if there's no choice, there's also no responsibility, is there? There's no obligation to have to change. Our victimhood can, can become like a warm blanket around us. And sometimes, as we said, you can be a victim so long that you would have no identity at all if you suddenly were no longer a victim. And it can be a terrifying thing to suddenly be given a choice again. And I imagine this man was feeling all of these things. Here comes this man who looks right through him with this kind of presence. Do you want to get well? There's even possibly a flicker somewhere in his mind that this could actually happen. Then who would I be? Who would I do? You know, people give me things as I lie here. What will I do then? All of these thoughts going through, you know. You have a choice, Jesus is saying. And if you don't know what you seek, do you at least know that you want to get well? Can you at least say that you want the hurting to stop? Can you at least say that much? Well, then what? Well, then pick up your pallet and walk. Pick up your pallet and follow me. Now, what's the pallet? Well, the pallet is the thing that he was laying on. But for all of us, you know, it's the trappings of our victimhood. Whatever it is that we cling to in our excuse for not changing, our excuse for not going forward. Or it could be those unconscious things that we don't even know are keeping us from moving forward and moving out of our victimhood. But do we want to get well? Do we want the hurting to stop? Are we willing to do whatever it takes from psychodynamic therapy to CBT to contemplative practice, whatever it takes to bring up out of the subconscious those things that are keeping us sick? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to say yes? Are we willing to make a choice? Are we willing to do something different than we've been doing all along? To experience something different, a different kind of behavior that will change the way that we think, that will change the way that we see everything around us. That's what Jesus is saying. Repent. Change direction. Pick up your pallet, whatever it is that you're laying on. Leave your nets in the boat, the tools of your trade, whatever those happen to be, whatever you identify with as a tradesman, and follow because the kingdom is right here. The kingdom is right now. It's already here, already present, just waiting for you. That's it. It's the same message over and over. Repent and believe. Repent and trust that the way is sure. But you can't trust that the way is sure until you've walked it long enough to experience its trustworthiness. This is not a passive thing. I think one of the most egregious things that we as Christians talk about is the vicarious atonement. There's nothing vicarious about it. You know, Jesus did what he did, but he is calling us to do after the things that he did, to experience them as human beings, to go through everything that we have to go through, to let go of our pallets and our nets so that we can move forward in a completely different experience to actually partner with God's semyana, partner with God's will, desire, deepest purpose, with God's pleasure. Make it our deepest purpose, pleasure, and desire. And what does it cost to do that? Well, nothing. And everything. <laughs> it doesn't cost us anything. But everything that we think we have and are needs to be put on the shelf because everything that God has and everything that God is right here and right now is what we need to take on as Talmudim, as true followers. There is nothing lacking, is what Jesus is telling us. There is nothing withheld ever. It is all here. It is all now. Jesus is standing right here in front of us, calling us, each one of us, with that piercing gaze, with that undivided presence, his eyes fixed on us, do you wish to get well? Are we willing to drop everything we think we know, everything we think we are, and our own victimhood, 
to accept the truth that it is our choice, our choice alone, to be able to see the kingdom fully formed right in front of us, right here and right now, not waiting for anything anymore. That's our choice. We think somehow often that salvation is God's choice about us. But Jesus is saying what the Jews believe, that salvation is really our choice to see and accept that God has already made his choice about us, for us, and is calling us to be right next to him. Our choice. Do you wish to get well? What do you seek? Ask those questions because those are the questions that Jesus is asking and it will lead you like a laser to what's really important in life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for these people. These people who made such an impression on those around them that they have been preserved for 2,000 years and counting in our tradition. These people who come alive for us again with the fewest of words in our scripture and show us what it looks like to drop our nets, to drop our pallets and follow something completely different that we can't even truly imagine. So thank you for their example. Thank you for their courage. Thank you for their willingness. And thank you for your love that animates it all. Without that, there is no reason, no motivation to do anything different. So Father, we're asking you to help us at the beginning of this new year to ask the difficult questions, to be honest with ourselves as to whether we are truly acting on what we say we really wish and desire for our lives so that we can make the change of direction that we need to make to actually get there. And Father, thank you for your life, for your love, and for your constancy. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.